What was that? I don't know. I just know this is what happens if you don't invite me in. What if I didn't say anything? Would you have kept bleeding? Would you have died? I knew you wouldn't let me. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to an episode of The Fear of God. We are, in fact, on episode 22. That is deuce deuce in this new, strange new world we find ourselves of 2017. So uh, I am one of your hosts, Nathan Rouse, and typically with me is uh co-host and longtime friend Reed Lackey. But he said something about needing to take a nap in a bathtub, which is, you know, just peculiar. But, you know, we all have our things and well there you are reed did you you get did you get some shut eye in there oh it's actually uh yeah it's it's brighter out here than i thought yeah so so now i'm in real trouble (laughs) well be careful don't get in too much of that uh brightness there you know uh uh if you are unsure that was definitely a reference to the movie we are going to be discussing today um which is the film let me in Oh, I guess the subtitle to this one is The Adventures of Nightcrawler and Hit Girl. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> oh, um, that's awesome. you know, Let Me In is itself, and, and I welcome some of your thoughts on this read, is, is itself a remake of, is it Swedish? Is Let the Right One In? Yeah, Let the Right Swedish. One In. Is a, it's a, sweet, a Swedish novel and the film itself is, it sh- is Swedish. Is it Swedish or Swedish? <laughs> you know what? If you're going to make fun of every single list that I have, we're going to have a long episode. Um, no, uh, uh, the other great import from that wonderful country being that chef um, that we all know and love. Well, yeah, I actually think the title of this film was originally Here's the first ever Liverpool. Yes, yes. Let the right to burn it in. Um, used to yes, that's, vampire. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that is wonderful. Uh, but you know what I typically, and I remember this happening. I usually hate when, with a capital H, when a wonderful foreign movie, you suddenly hear like, Oh, guess what? We're too dumb to read subtitles. So we're going to make an American version. Like, and that <laughs> happened when I heard that this movie was on the horizon. And I am happy to report to have been proven wrong. I mean, I do think 
I still don't love when that happens, but I do think Let Me In is an incredibly compelling adaptation in its own right. Um, a very Absolutely. well, very well crafted film, um, that even does a few things a little differently than Let the Right One In in a way that is interesting enough to make it sort of earn its existence. So I, I don't know. I really think a lot of this movie, although I do <clears throat> want to point out to you, Reed, uh, my, my co-host, my wife, as she was avoiding the den while I was rewatching this movie, this is my second time watching it, mm. um, did just sort of say aloud. She said, it's a shame you and Reed don't have a podcast about romantic comedies, <laughs> you know, because, <laughs> because she has to actively avoid, uh, as a, as a non fan of much of this material. That's funny. Um, and specifically, this is a pretty grotesque movie in places. Um, sure. You sure. Know, so, so. I should say, well, well, we'll get to, you know, maybe Shaun of the Dead. That's a bit of a romantic comedy in the horror genre. Um, sure, sure. A little I'll, bit, I'll, I'll a little go bit. with it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I do want us to spend a few minutes just sort of, um, you know, hitting on some few, you know, fun facts and or likes or dislikes. Did you know, Reed, that there's a very interesting connection in this movie to another very recent 80s set piece of material. And that is, I wouldn't have known this because you don't actually see her face in the film, but the actress who plays Owen's mother is an actor named Cara Buono. Cara Buono also plays the mother of and the characters' names are going to elude me right now, but it's the brother and sister on Stranger Things. Um, oh, really? Become, you know, this, yeah, yeah. Um, that is the same actor. Um, which is wow. fascinating because Let Me In is set in 1983. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And even, and even begins with a Ronald Reagan clip. Oh, the other yes. thing that I, the other thing I find interesting is, um, we are on a real Richard Jenkins run. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Who oh, yeah. I, I, I find nothing wrong with whatsoever. He is a wonderful, I am, I hope he's a wonderful human being. He's definitely a wonderful actor. Based on all accounts that I've heard, he is also, yes, quite a wonderful human being. But he was in Cabin in the Woods. He's in this. We're going to be also talking about Bone Tomahawk this month. Uh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> um, in which, uh, that one in particular, and I'm sure we'll address this there. He, in that movie, he shows up on screen and I was like, is that Richard Jenkins? And I wanted to, I IMDB it just to make sure. And sure enough, it was. And I was proud to, proud of myself and happy to see him. Yeah. So let's talk about some just sort of likes, dislikes, Reed, you know, um, sure. it, it, now is this would let me in. Had you seen let the right one in first? Yes. Yes. I have, I have read the novel and I have seen oh, the really? film. Okay. Both of those before having seen let me in. So. To echo what you were saying earlier, Let Me In holds a very rare distinction among American remakes in that I actually, and listeners are going to sort of take me to task for this, but that I, this is my opinion. I'm entitled to it. That uh, I think Let Me In is a slightly better film than Let the Right One In. Perhaps some of that is. Those are bold, those are bold words, Mr. Lackey. I, I know, I know. And you know what? Maybe to be, uh, to hedge my opinion a little bit and to be a bit more broadly fair, I think I should, should clarify and say that Let Me In resonated with me more than Let the Right One In did. So, so maybe if we're talking about objective choices, Let the Right One In might still win, but, uh, but Let Me In really affected me and, I had seen Let the Right One In. I had seen, uh, I had read the book. Like you, I roll my eyes and very much am, am annoyed and frustrated when, or, you know, when Americans are like, hey, we want one too. We'll, we'll just make this, you know, and, uh, 
And they always feel very cheap and they always, I shouldn't say always, but they often feel cheap or easy whenever an American film takes a film from another culture and just translates it into American sensibilities. Typically something happens like, for instance, I don't want to derail us too much, but I recently, uh, just within the last year or two, watched the original film, The Vanishing which I had seen the American remake, which was ironically directed by the same man who directed the original, but I had seen the American remake some years ago, and uh, I don't want to get into spoilers for The Vanishing, but when I saw the original, I was so like, why did they remake this? I don't understand. You know, like, when a film becomes, when a film is so profoundly resonant, you wonder why studios would ever, other than the obvious money grab, why they would ever try to enter into the conversation by just a sort of a cheap imitation. That having been said, Let Me In makes a really good case for why sometimes you let that happen. Because I think Let Me In has some very specifically American things to say with this same story that I think are profound and that affect me. There is nothing, I would say there is nothing cheap or easy about this film. It's very well crafted. It is haunting. It is at times beautiful and horrific, and I was deeply, deeply moved by a number of things that I'm sure we'll get into uh, with this film. But the but but the first and and foremost, I would say, which is just the tone, just the overall tone of this film. It's not dependent on a variety of cheap escalating jump scares. Um, it's very interested in mood. It's very interested in character, and uh, there's a lot of substance in this film and i think it has its own merits uh even separated out from the well and you and and i think a a button on that sort of strain of the conversation this could be said about even remakes that are non-linguistic in other words you know oh uh there's a new bad news bears with billy bob thornton oh who cares you know like whatever when when we when our our collective memory is so short that like 15 years is long enough to make remake a whole movie. Yeah. But I think, I think what is fascinating about let me in. And I texted you while during my rewatch of man, what a well-crafted movie this is. Like once I got past my initial reservations about, or my cynicism about the remake portion of the equation, you know, it is rare in an instance like this, where there's a certain iteration of a piece of material, then a, a new version of it, however different it might be or might not be, it is rare when the consumer is the winner <laughs> in that right, conversation. Right. You know, it's it's rare when the film appreciator, when the film fan is the winner. Typically, it's more of a corporate winning um, than it is, you know, us as fans. And I think there's something wonderful and 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 pleasant about that experience where you can watch Let the Right One In and you can watch Let Me In. And they are both have uniquenesses to them and are both rewarding experiences. That, that's a pretty rare uh, experience, pretty rare phenomenon. I, I wholeheartedly agree with you. And, uh, you know, lest we, lest we mention uh, or lest we forget that this film is specifically a companion film to last week's Dracula starring Bela yeah. Lugosi. Yep. And, and one of the things that I love, I mentioned last week, that I, I sort of despise that the vampire has been neutered in cultural mythology but this film categorically does not do that. The vampire in this no. film is a proper monster. The vampire in this film yeah. is intensely horrific, is very monstrous, but there are some elements that I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about in a few moments 
there are also some elements of innocence. There are some elements of just a quality of affection and a quality of kind of, uh, like you're, you're simultaneously drawn to and repulsed by so much of what you're seeing. And I think mm-hmm. this film, more so than many others, if any others, uh, in recent years, just, just understands vampires. It just, and sure. I think that's, I think that is a credit to the original material and to Matt Reeves' adaptation and interpretation of that material. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, it understands more than just vampires, which is part of the strength of this movie. Let's, let's, um, uh, streamline a little bit here. Did you have any other, I, I've got a couple, any just strict kind of surface technical, good, bad, like dislike kind of thing? I think in general, I just, I really would praise the performances. And, uh, I, I think, <laughs> let me, let me pull up their names so that I know that I say them, that I say them correctly. Nightcrawler and Hit Girl is, uh, is not going to cut it. Cody Smith McPhee. Cody Smith McPhee and Chloe Grace Moretz. Boy, that is a mouthful. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. but, uh, you know, aside from Richard Jenkins, who, yes, I also just adore and love that we, We've, we've talked about so many of his movies recently, but the two of them just deliver such powerful performances in this because they capture the the innocence and the mystery, uh, but then also tap into the fear um, with what's with what's happening. I think in a very effective way. Some of that may be Matt Reeves' direction, but I think uh, I think just specifically those two performances, the trio of the two of them and Richard Jenkins. Uh, really elevate this film. Quick shout out to Elias Cotis, who I like yes. a great deal. And you uh, know, it's funny. It's funny you reference him because as I'm, because I really wanted to give Casey Jones his props. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> you know, this movie set in '83. It almost makes me wonder if Matt Reeves was like, you know, to to us kids of the '80s, like that is Casey Jones. Like oh, that oh, is, yeah. yeah. I yeah. mean, there is no, you know, with props to Stephen Amell, who I like, um, Elias Cody is, is Casey Jones. And so I wonder if it was this fun little meta homage to that era, um, to have him be in this movie set in 1983. I was, I was just about to say that, like, as a, with a movie as deliberate as this, uh, even if Matt Reeves didn't intend it, I'm going to say yes, right. he intended it. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, a couple of good, bad, like, dislike. I think, um, and we can dive into this, unpack this a bit more in the thematic, but I think they nail the sense of isolation. Right. You know, I think, I think there are movies and I'm going to get in trouble for this because so many people who I like generally, uh, loved the movie perks of being a wallflower. Um, I actually did really not like that movie. And part of it was I kept wondering where are the adults in these parents, in these kids lives in a way that uh, felt right. kind of forced, like, you know, no man is an island. And uh, although th- that movie may be uh, engaging that conversation a little bit, but I felt like in this movie, at least the sense of isolation is present and you are still aware of adults in these kids lives. Like they are at least given some lip service to having some sort of presence, but even they have their own stories. You know, you right. see very right. little of the mother of Owen, but you, mm-hmm. you understand implicitly why he feels so alone because yeah. of what she's dealing with personally. So I think that they do a great job with that. Two kind of dislikes. One's a bit surfacey. Um, one is a bit technical, but one is, I do think it's funny that though, quote unquote, 12 and clearly, you know, much older than 12, uh, Abby doesn't know, or at least gives no, she tells him that she doesn't know what a Rubik's cube is or huh. what Pac-Man are. I found that a little like, huh, that's, I don't know if I believe that, but okay, whatever. Um, (laughs) 
The other one that I actually do think is a knock for me against the movie, I think the CGI is terrible. Uh, uh, it, it falls into that category of what I call the rubber man CGI. Mm. I think specifically of versions of this that show up in the first Tobey Maguire Spider-Man, the first Harry Potter movie, you know, when they're learning to ride the brooms. Um, this, this sort of like, and, and it was, which is funny because Let Me In is much later than both of those movies, but scenes where Abby attacks the man in the underpass, um, right. scenes right. where she's climbing the tree. It's just so, so visibly not real. Um, that, that it kind of, kind of pulls me out a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, and I wouldn't even disagree with that. I think in a, it's, it's one of those things where I, I just sort of recognize it and then move on with it, uh, in my mind. I totally think, I totally think you're right. And well, I just, I guess. I guess, and to totally be rude and cut you off there, I think what was odd to me about it is the movie does other effects so well. Like, right. You know, the, the sort of images of, yeah, 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 the makeup effects are fantastic. Um, even, you know, the, the, the woman in the hospital bursting into flames, like these, these register, these register well visually. Like those really stuck, stuck out to me as like, oh, wow, that's not. Chloe Grace Moretz at all. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. And I, and, uh, yeah, I totally, I totally resonate and understand that. You mentioned the, um, woman igniting on fire in the bathtub to, or not the bathtub, the, uh, the woman in the, in hospital. the hospital bed, um, igniting into flames. And that's something that, uh, yeah, that's a very creepy, creepy moment. But, you know, most of my likes, likes, dislikes, they're all likes and they're all scary. <laughs> For, sure. for, for me in this movie. Like, well, yeah, let's, we can get into that. Um, so the first one that I'll mention, probably the biggest one that I'll mention, some of the most frightening and compelling moments in the movie to me revolve around Richard Jenkins. And I have a few there, but the scariest, the, the scariest moment in this movie to me, I don't know why it, it gets me every single time. Every single time I think about the film is the moment, which I don't, I think you might be surprised that I'm citing this as a scary moment. But when she walks in and shows him what happens if she's not invited, mm. something about that, and I, you know, maybe we'll tap into it in this conversation, but something about that genuinely frightens me. Like where she, being a proper monster, steps in and shows him what happens because, and I think part of it is, because for the, for, for listeners who maybe haven't seen this film, please go see this film. But she steps in because he asks her, you know, what happens if you're not invited? So she steps in and when she walks into his, his room, then, then she begins to quake and, and shiver and blood begins to drip out of not even just like orifices, like eyes and ears and nose, but just, just epidermis period. Yeah. It just begins to, to seep out. And she's standing there just letting it happen. And of course, he's getting freaked out. So eventually he's like, okay, you can come in. You can come in. It's, it's, it's okay. You can come in. And it stops. And, uh, there's something about the moment that like oddly makes me frightened for her and frightened for him. It's really weird, but it's a, it's, it's a very compulsive moment because I get the feeling that there's some trust on her part for him, but I also get the feeling that there's some manipulation on her part. That she's enticing him in a way or like making him feel a little responsible for her because she, she sort of for a moment surrenders to the suffering of that condition. And she says afterwards where he says, you know, like, well, you know, what if I hadn't invited you in? What would have, what would have happened? And she said, I, she says something like, I don't know. I can't remember the exact line, but she says, I'm like, I don't know. And then she says, but I knew you wouldn't. 
you know, and it makes me feel like she's, she's making a play for him, making a play to draw him in and to, to sort of ensnare him into this relationship with her. And I just find that moment that's, immensely frightening. That's a really, let, hold that thought, hold, keep, keep that through line in your head. Cause I'm going to come back to that thematically. Uh, you just, you just opened up a, a new door for some of the theme stuff I was going to. Um, but, mm. Uh, in terms of just scary stuff for me, like you mentioned Richard Jenkins and goodness gracious, the first time, I mean, anytime this happens on screen, it's terrifying. But the first time you see him with that trash bag on his head, Ooh. that is a terrifying image. Yes, um, it really is. And I think, I do you know that was his idea? I apologize no, for interrupting you, but no, that was his fine. idea as an actor. It wasn't in the script. He just, he just had that thought. To, hey, why don't I do this? And, and Matt Reeves loved it. And yeah, it's, it's well, a chilling choice. You know, I, I think there's so much value in uh, good movies, at least in rewatching good movies. And, and, you know, you find yourself like, for instance, <clears throat> we've already addressed <clears throat> the let, uh, let the right one in sort of comparison here. Like to be able to watch this on its own merits and really dive in and really dig deep and what is happening in this movie. Like it's, you, you find, especially again, especially with well made, well-intended, fulfilling movies, there's a lot to, to chew on here. And I don't even mean just thematically. I mean, just like visually, like there's so much intentionality. Um, there's a lot going on in this movie and elements of this movie that really do, that are really strong, just don't call attention to themselves. Yeah. And this isn't, you know, Richard Jenkins is not a villain, right? He is a bad guy and he right. knows it. Anyway, again, I don't want to get into thematic stuff yet, but so him with a bag on his head is terrifying. Um, the car wreck is, is dreadful. Goodness Ooh. gracious. The car wreck is awful. So wonderfully um, shot because of how yes. horrific it is. Yeah. It reminded me of, uh, again, it's funny. We keep coming about this movie, but Cloverfield Lane's car wreck, like, you know, oh, it's right. coming, right? But, but even then you're not like spiritually prepared for what you're about to see. Right. Um, I think the strongest scary moment to me is all of the bullying, but especially uh, the pool attack like that. I don't even mean once he's in the pool. I mean, leading up to it. That is Ugh. a nightmare scenario. You know, it really any is. Other, I, I, I'm 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 actively resisting because some of these things open doors to theme. But do you have any other specific scary stuff? Well, you know, it's funny you say that because. I think that's part of the strength of this movie, and I think that's part of why I responded so strongly to it, because these things we're mentioning are not merely likes that we enjoyed them. They make us think. It's a very yeah. thought-provoking movie, and and that's why almost every moment that we mention, we have to resist diving into theme, because every moment is potent and pregnant with with opportunities to talk about deeper things, and I think that's part of why this movie is so rewarding to revisit yeah, I have uh, one more thing that I'll mention. I mean, the uh, we talked about Richard Jenkins, obviously him pouring the the, the oh. acid on himself to disfigure himself, and when we finally see the the full makeup effect of of what that did to his face, that's very that's very frightening. But two two things I'll mention, and then we can maybe go ahead and and dive into theme. W one of them is the moment when the cop is being attacked by Abby because he's found mm. her in the bathtub. Mm -hmm. And Owen, good Lord, I love this movie. <laughs> like even mentioning a moment, I'm just like, oh, I love that Owen reaches out and Matt Reeves set it up so that it looks like he's reaching. At first, it looks like he's reaching to help the cop, like he's reaching for the for the the hand of the cop. But instead, he grabs the doorknob and closes yeah. it and lets Abby yeah. finish her work. And then she just like step when she steps out, she lays 
her bloody head like on his shoulder. Oh my gosh. No, I'm she getting- ki- no, she kisses him. Does she kiss him in that moment? Yeah. yeah oh that's, that's, yes, you're yeah. right. You're right. And she oh, pulls my- away and he's got the bloodied mouth. Oh my gosh, you're right. And and I mean it's just it's so oh it's so freaky. And it's something that this film really just taps into. It does such a great job of connecting like innocence, which is attractive and which is um, very, you know, uh, it, it makes you feel good to think about innocent and, and pleasant things, but it marries them to these monstrous things. You know, there's this innocent relationship. Like one thing, oh gosh, I keep resisting having to go into themes. Okay. Let me share my last moment and then, then maybe we can just go for it. Cause that's yeah, where we yeah. all want to go. Um, it frightens me how much I enjoy the fate of the bullies. Sure. Like I enjoy so much. That what happens to them happens. And every single time I see that moment, I so love it. And the moment I love it, I have this feeling of like, I should not love that. That is terrible. That is horrific. That is awful. This this film is so potent and powerful to me. It had a deep effect on me. Let's do this. So, you know, listeners may be like, good grief. You guys are trying to burn through this. Well, usually, you know, there's a lot of thematic stuff to talk about here. And I really don't want to do a disservice to to that material because it is so rich. And, and I think you've done a great job identifying Reed, like a strong story, the elements of plot, which in this case we would say are scary things are indicative of theme. Like the best stories, like the, the, the characters, the, they're not two separate entities, you know? Right. If yes. So, so that being said, um, let's, let's kick this door wide open. So, I have probably about two or three. I may overlap some of what you're, where you're going with. Sure. The very first thing I have written, though, there's a lot of good here is that just as being a kid is hard. Um, mm. and I think, I think what is so fascinating about this movie is there are a lot of themes or not a lot. There's about three or four themes that are really well executed. Like it's not just this mishmash of lip service to certain thematic ideas. Like there's some really good mining happening here um in this screenplay but you know we we made a reference during uh the gift about each other's high school years and and while yes mm-hmm. i would say largely i had a pleasant experience there i think middle school is hell for anyone you know that's mm-hmm. i don't know if gosh it's it's an unfortunate nature of our society that that's that's such a refining fire for kids but like that is such a difficult time and you've got this the movie does such a great job of helping you see this kid is so on, uh, so alone. Um, yeah. he's so isolated. He's so awkward and gangly. Um, yeah. he, you know, the, even the sort of, uh, sexuality gets preyed upon by the bullies, like, you know, all this sort of stuff, you know, even he's just, he's confused. I don't think the movie is making any sort of declarative statement about him being or not being homosexual. I, I really don't, but it is interesting when she says, I'm not a girl, he senses confusion. Like this right. poor child is so mm. beset with just isolation and confusion about himself and about the world around them, around him. And he has nobody to like be a guiding light for him. You know, right. his mother is, his mother is broken over the loss of her marriage. He tries to call his dad to reach out to him. His dad makes fun of him for, you oh. know, you know, what is really a heartfelt, heartbreaking entreaty. Like, it's bold language is can a person be evil, but it's rooted in a very real experience he's having. And the dad just dismisses him. Like it is a really, it is a real testimony that they, they, they give such strong service to 
that through line for him in that way. Yeah. Do you, do you any thoughts on that specifically? Oh, so many. I think you're, you're tapping into a lot of the same. You're, you're right. There's a lot of crossover because I love, I'll start here. I find it immensely interesting how sexuality is handled in this film because vampire movies in general, almost all of them, including Dracula to a very small degree, have a kind of a sexual component to them. Sure. Um, there's something that is, is usually this, this attraction, the, uh, the vampire, you know, it is it is believed in vampire mythology that the act of sucking a victim's blood is a sexual act, you know, sure, to, to sure. the vampire. That, it, you know, at the very least, it's a sensual act and possibly even a sexual one. But I find it so fascinating in this movie. You've got two specifically adolescents, preteens, on the cusp of teen, but, but preteen, and uh, one of them who is, of course... <laughs> It could be a couple hundred years old. We don't quite know. But you have these two, you know, again, these innocent characters. And you you touched on it. There's one of the first things that we see Owen doing is wearing a god-awful creepy mask, holding oh, a knife. Yeah, holding a knife and, you know, saying, apparently taunting some little girl. And you're sitting here like, what in the world is wrong with this kid? Like, like something's something's off about this kid. And then... You come to find out, no, that's how he's being right. bullied. So he's, so he's sort of putting on the bully role in that regard. But you're right. There's all this melding and, and blurring of the lines of like boy, girl, you know, in the original novel and in the, in, in the Swedish film, Let the Right One In, Abby is not a girl. She's a, she's a castrated boy. And it's something really? that I don't yeah. remember that. Oh yeah, wow. if you, if you were to rewatch uh, Let the Right One In, there's a very brief scene, but a very deliberate scene where she's she, uh, she he in that film is changing clothes, and it shows uh, mutilated uh, groin area, and and that's a that's a component of the novel that's a little bit more prominently called out. But you know, in this film, in Let Me In. Um, she is a girl, but I still think that they do some fascinating things of blurring the lines there of, uh, of just sort of coming to understand, uh, gender role and gender nature. And one thing that I thought as a theme, I think it's interesting. Good Lord. I hope I expressed this the right way. Maybe we can unpack it a little bit. The vulnerability of women is played out in the bullying cycle that we see. And I think it is. Immensely significant that a girl, quote unquote, kills them all. Mm. That, that, you know, it's kind of playing with this notion. They taunt, they taunt him and saying like he's a little girl and, and, and they, they push that down and, and it sort of is, is tugging at a general cultural stigma around the supposed vulnerability of women. But mm. I think it's, I think it's sizable that it is a girl, Abby, who comes in. And that's part of why I like that the film, that the American film makes her a girl uh, mm, versus like yeah. a castrated boy. That's part of why I really like that choice. Um, not that the other choice is necessarily, um, you know, a misstep. Uh, that's just a different, there's a different intention behind it. But I like that in this film, she's a girl because I think the film is really tugging at some of that sort of gender politics, some of that sort of gender definition. And it's a girl who comes in and just... It is the most powerful one of all of them. Clearly, the the strongest and most powerful one of any of those characters is uh, is a female. Now, granted, she's a vampire, but you see what I'm saying. I don't think that it's yes. uh, 
that it's insignificant that that dynamic is at play and that it resolves the way that it does. Uh, no, I totally agree with you. I think that's a really fascinating observation. Um, you know, I think something that is real fascinating to me and, and, and I do have like, this is like an, a second of like four theme thematic ideas to, to broach, but they're all sort of interlaced, which again is the testimony to the strength of the movie. But, and you just broadened this conversation with one of your like dislike talking points. Um, what I wrote down is bullies create bullies. Mm. And I don't know that I would have sat down even to this rewatch, having consumed this movie once already, as well as its uh, Swedish counterpart before and set out with a mind towards this movie is making a conversation about the violence we do to each other and, and the bullying nature that's inherent to, to pick, pick a level of society and you're going to find it present, but it's really interesting. And because, because, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll interweave two thematic ideas here too. This movie makes me squirm because it presses on a button that I hold dear. And that's that. And, and that I, Nathan would say is a, a tenet of faithful living. And that's that redemptive violence gets us nowhere. Hmm. And on the one hand, I feel like I'm about to just throw all my themes in the stew right now, but <laughs> On the one hand, like you said, like you, you are compelled to cheer at the end. Like, yeah, you are almost like, oh, oh my God, his head is, he's, oh my gosh, yep. you know, like you are like, they're getting what they deserve. They're getting comeuppance of the, of a, of a friggin' ancient degree. Like <laughs> this is, you know, like epic level comeuppance. And yet I can't. It, I, I can't in good conscience, like endorse much of the actions of the characters in this movie. Right. Um, right. You know, when she, I am deeply unsettled when she says to him, hit back hard. Oh, hit back harder you, than you dare. Yes. Yes. <sighs> you know, like I, I, and this is where so much of not fear of God conversation, but just conversations of faithful living period your your philosophy your theology comes into tension with practical living right. not as in i think they are inherently going to conflict with each other and always be always counter each other but you know i watch this movie and i think as a parent how would i encourage this child mm. what would i encourage this child's course of action to be you know because on the one hand i do agree you cannot just let yourself be a doormat in life. Right. And yet <laughs> on a biblical level, 70 times seven, there is deg a degree of ownership of doormatness. If right. that makes any sense whatsoever. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think it does. You know, and that, and so this movie really challenges or really forces me. It doesn't challenge it in the sense that, Oh, I'm wrong about redemptive violence being an incorrect course of philosophy. It does push those buttons. And says, in the face of reality, and again, divorce yourself from the heightened reality of this movie of vampires, but in the reality of a world in which might makes right. Like, you see it. You see it. You see these kids torture Owen. Torture Yeah, him. yeah. You see, 45 minutes later, the, one of them's older brother bullying them, and you're like, oh my gosh, man. Yeah. This movie oh, is so... 
And, and this is what you brought into this topic to include that I had not necessarily considered. Abby is a bully and yeah. she creates in Owen a bully. Yeah. She and does. this is, she this is the does. tension of this movie is you want and the movie creates sympathy for these characters. Her a monster. Jenkins a villain. Yeah. Oh, Owen ultimately a bully. You sympathize with all of them. And yet there is no getting around that by the, and I'm going to, I'm, I'm slowly knocking my themes off the list here that by the end of the movie, Owen is now complicit in being in, you know, he has become the thing that tortured him. Yes. She has, she has enslaved him to the very thing that Richard Jenkins despised of himself. Yes. And here's a question for you, man. And this is sort of a, this would possibly be an end of podcast question, though I don't want it to be because I actually have another interesting theme here. Sure. Is this a hopeless movie? Hmm. Because, yeah. because you're tempted to be like, Oh, Owen wins. He vanquishes the bullies that are tormenting him. But at the end of this movie, he is now Richard Jenkins and nothing has changed yeah. for her. Um, in answer to your question directly, I think there's a difference between hopelessness and a cautionary tale. So here's how hmm. I would frame I can, that. I can, I can receive that. That I think that like, for instance, I make this joke and this is a side tangent, but I make this joke about the work of Frank Darabont, that Frank Darabont made two films, uh, Shawshank Redemption and The Mist, that both have the same theme, and that is never give up hope. But there are two ways to tell that story. There's the Shawshank Redemption way where a character doesn't give up hope and things go well for them. There's the character, there's the, the Mist way of telling it where a character gives up hope at the exact wrong moment. Right. And and is shown, hey, you should not have given up hope. So I think there is value to a cautionary tale, which I would categorize Let Me In as. Like, for instance, j j as you were talking, man, just one right after another, I was like, oh, I got to remember to say this. I got to remember. Sorry, to say I didn't I didn't mean to just avalanche. Uh, no, 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 no. It was it was very good because it is it, it was one of those things where I was like just wanting to give you constant high fives. Yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. Yes, I agree. Every authority figure, you mentioned the mom and dad, like how would you parent this child? Every authority figure, the teachers, his mom, his dad, they all fail him. Every single one of them fail him. They dismiss him or they don't, they don't step in and teach him how to be in this situation, how to be who he's supposed to be. Who comes through for him? Right. Her. The monster. The monster, the monster, it is a monster, yeah. but she's there for him when he needs her. He is being threatened to drown or have one of his eyes gouged out, and she will have none of that. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, that's part of why we cheer that moment is not just because the villains are getting their comeuppance, but it's because this this kid who we know, like, God, that is a terrible and horrific situation to be in, but somebody's got to save him. And a teacher's sure as hell not going to do it. Mom's not going to do it. The dad's not going to do it. So Abby comes in. And Abby just takes care of business. And I think that is a cautionary tale that if, if we do not, I'm not about to preach, but I sincerely think this. If we do not actively instruct wholeness and actively impart wisdom, something else will come in and take that place. Wow. Yeah. Something yeah. else will come in and seize that void. And we ourselves let it happen that if we don't glom on to the things that we know that, you know, whatsoever is pure and whole and right and good. And I'm not quoting it directly, but if we don't 
think on these things. Something else will come in and take that place. And we, we, right. I mean, very deliberately, we let it in. That's the name of the film. Right. Like right. we, right. we let it in. It's this, it's this kind of insidious nature of evil that when we have a need and Owen, dear Lord, has right. a need. Man. And nobody will come through for him. Nobody will, will, will speak into it. Nobody will protect him. Nobody will come through for him. So then you get this girl and it's like, no wonder he shut the door on the cop. No wonder he becomes the Richard Jenkins character. No wonder Richard right. Jenkins is who he is because nobody else. It reminds me of, uh, of a moment from Stephen King's book, The Stand, where um, the character, good Lord, now I've referenced it, and now I'm, I'm having trouble remembering the character's name, but uh, like Randall Flagg's right-hand man. Um, trash can man? Uh, not trash can man, the uh, Lloyd, Lloyd, Lloyd Henry. Yep. So, um, so Lloyd um, is confronted by Glenn Bateman, uh, and I won't spoil that specific thing, though if you encounter the stand, it's so long, you'll likely forget I said anything. Um, <laughs> but, um, but Lloyd is confronted by Glenn Bateman about like, hey, you've aligned yourself with evil. You've aligned yourself with a monstrous thing, with a monstrous person, and his empire is going to fall. And Lloyd basically carries out Randall Flagg's action against the good guys because he says he was there for me when nobody else was. Wow. He was, he came and protected me and rescued me when nobody else did. And I think that this film is a powerful cautionary tale about dismissing need and dismissing void wow. and dismissing yeah. lack yeah. because otherwise there is something else waiting that and and Abby is not good she's right. not she's right. not good but we cheer for her to a degree and root for her to a degree why because she is taking care of Owen and yeah. nobody yep. else will take care of Owen so that is what can happen and that's part of why I find this movie so compelling that is part of what can happen is that somebody will step in i always have this this moment, it happened a couple of times in sort of anti-hero stories like The Sopranos, or it happens sometime in monster movies where, you know, there will be this scenario of like a bad person doing something awful to people we like, to a character we like. And then this bad evil threat comes in and threatens the characters that we care about. And suddenly we realize, oh man, but now the monster who's taken, it's the Hannibal Lecter thing with Clarice. You know, it's like, don't mess with Clarice because now you've got Hannibal Lecter on your trail. And there's a right. part of us that's like, oh, you just awakened, you just awakened a beast. And there's a part of us that cheers, not because we want to see the monsters thrive, but because somebody's got to stand up. Somebody's wow. got to, somebody's yeah. got to step in. And I think on a larger scale, I'm going to resist heavily getting into social commentary or politics or anything else. Don't it's do it. It's, don't, it's, don't resist. <laughs> it's don't one of those resist. things where it's like when people are not feeling like somebody's for them, like somebody's, you know, on their side, what will they turn to? They'll turn to the thing that they know to be dangerous, that they know to be scary, that they know in some degree to be awful, but they'll turn to it because that thing's got our back. That thing right. is going to is going to stand up and that thing's not going to tolerate any more of this BS anymore. So we're going to we're going to 
literally like enter into relationship with this thing because we're so desperate to be stood up for, so desperate right. to be, to have our need spoken into. And when right. we, as sort of a, sort of a final button before I calm myself down and <laughs> toss it back to you is if we, the body of Christ, the church, the people of God, if we don't step in and do it just bluntly, something else will, right? Something yep. else will step in and will take that role. And that's on us, I believe. I believe when that happens, well, and, that that's on us. Yeah, and I, I let me in. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think, I think, wow. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll get explicit on a macro level, then we can dial it back into the movie some. But yeah, we have sanctioned a bully, and um, uh, you know, you, you can, uh, we'll, we'll be explicit. Um, you can call our maybe at this point. Uh, president, maybe at this point still president elect. I'm not sure exactly how the dates are going to line up, but, um, you can call him a good businessman if you want. You might ultimately even call him a, a good president, but there is no, uh, uh mincing words that he's a bully. And right, once he right. did get elected, what happened? Bullies create bullies. Bullies mm -hmm. reveal bullies. Mm -hmm. Bullies encourage bullying. And it is right. happening and is going to continue to happen unless something intervenes. And you make a very good point that hear me, like, there is so much nuance that should be imposed upon a lot of levels of this conversation. And we're just sort of drive by driving by on it. And I get that, but there is something dramatically in error when the church writ large, either a aligns itself with what it knows to be a bully mm -hmm. or at the least B is tacit in its, sort of uh, observation of the ascension of a bully, meaning in, right. in more layman's terms, like stop being silent. Like, right. you know, if, if it is fascinating, I, I had no idea this movie was so rich before six o'clock last night, you know, it is telling and it is important to note that in our, in 1980s world, Owen would have killed himself. Yeah. Like just yeah. period. Mm -hmm. In 2017's world, he would have killed a bunch of people and then killed himself because people are not paying attention to those around them who need love and attention and right. have deep need to be seen, to be heard, to know they are cared for. Right. And instead, right. we just sort of sanction the bullies. Well, mm -hmm. Uh, well, you know, let's wait and see, or, or, and, uh, you know, I'm getting, I'm getting, uh, probably a bit too bullying there myself, but you know, like there's, there's something to be said for active, present cultural awareness when people around you of any stripe, whether they look like you or don't are being mocked, are being bullied, are being abused. And right, yes, right. it is, it is the call of us individually as faithful believers in this person we call Jesus. It is, uh, a compulsion on the part of the church who calls itself the bride, you know, that, right, that we right. pay attention and stop just sort of being like, well, maybe it'll work out. Like it's time to stop saying that and start, start working on it. Um, woo wee. Uh, so. <laughs> <laughs> something else I want to, it, it, it's, it's similar, some, some similar touch points, but a, a different approach here. I think one of the most fascinating lines in this movie to me is in, in the mouth of Richard Jenkins. Um, he looks at her at one point and he says, maybe I want to get caught. Oh yeah. Um, oh yeah. And it's not even meant necessarily as a threat to her. 
it's meant as resignation, like uh, exhaustion. We talked last week, and 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 here we'll reopen this coffin, if you will, waka waka. Um, <laughs> there's so many Muppets references happening happening here. Um, <clears throat> uh, to this conversation about addiction or this conversation about enslavement, you you made the point a minute ago. Like Bella Lugosi's Dracula, we can watch in this weird kind of disconnected. Like it's this sort of heightened character slash caricature almost. Right. You watch Abby. And this is what I mean. This movie, this movie causes tension internally because there's no getting around it. She's a monster. Like, right. There, right. there is a, there is a wickedness. There is, if we want to use the word, an evilness about her. And yet the movie challenges us because we sort of sympathize with her too. Like, yeah. um, but there's no denying Richard Jenkins character is a slave to this person. Oh, yeah. Um, and you referenced the title already. Let me in. Like, I don't want. I think it's important, you know, in Gremlins, which was a, was a far richer podcast and conversation than I think either of us anticipated. But, you know, we referenced the concept of legalism. And I think that's a, a, a worthy addition to the mix here in the sense that I think I think there's a tension we have to constantly be vigilant about. Like the movie's called Let Me In. A person's enslavement to an idol, a person's enslavement to an addiction I would say rarely to never happens accidentally. Mm. You know, mm. you, you through an initial breaking of a, of a, of an internal, you know, you, you, you trip a sensor, you cut a trip line in your own self that opens the door, not in an immediate assaultive avalanche kind of way, right. But in a mic, in a micro infinitesimal kind of way that, that over the course of time grows, I think it's important. Again, I want to make a distinction here. Um, because I, what I'm not saying is you, you adopt a legalistic standpoint. I, I think we should actively resist legalism. This thing that states here are the rules. You strictly abide them. You never break them. You always pay heed to them. These rules become your law. Your law supersedes how you envision yourself in relationship to the people around you and the Lord. We should always actively resist that. But in your, you read, I'll call back your words from gremlins. You said our defining point is relationship with Jesus. You know, like right. this is this is the sun we orbit. Wow, I really didn't mean to make a really flannel graph kind of uh, <laughs> Sunday school uh, joke, but it there. works. But it's true. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I meant it in a cosmic kind of way. Um, but like, it's fascinating. You know, it, it is. You you made the statement just a second ago. Like, Owen needs a protector, and no one's yeah. there for him. Yeah. So the door is open. And, mm -hmm. and Abby, and, and, and Abby is let in, you know, yeah. I mean, that is, absolutely. That is, if, if you distill all of this down, it's that. And, and if we're going to have a conversation about faithful living, like, you know, I think about, this is a strange, this may be a strange thing to add to the mix here, but the, the, the politician, Anthony Weiner, you know, who like has become both a punchline and goodness gracious. Like every time that man is in the headlines, I'm like, God, someone help him. Yeah. Somebody yeah. please like. Not in a, and I don't mean that in a dismissive, jokey way. I mean, like the erosion has happened. Yeah. There's no yeah. sense of, of boundary. Like the man needs help. Sure. And we, sure. Um, you referenced in our 2016 episode, year in review about Mel Gibson. Like, right. The minute, right. the minute we look at the Anthony Weiners of the world, the minute we look at the Mel Gibsons of the world and say, you know, that's it. I'm done with them. Right. We are in trouble. Like, yeah, you're right. They need our help. And I'm just talking. 
What are you thinking, Reed, over there? How are you Oh, doing? my God. Dude, <laughs> uh, this is, like, it, it, it's one of those things where I feel like, you know, unfortunately, we're going to be, you know, winding down here sometime soon. But honestly, like, I, I want just like another hour to, to talk about this kind of stuff because this really is, I think, of the utmost urgency that people today grasp this. But I think being a Christian, being kind of on the inside of that cultural call out, I think it's of the utmost urgency that, that Christians like get this, that they figure this out because it is often that believers, quote unquote believers, um, I'm sorry, that, that was rude. Uh, they may be very sincere and devout in their faith and still susceptible to dismissing people as human beings and dismissing their calling to reach forth in reconciliation and reach forth in, in trying to make things right and lead people towards wholeness. Most of the time, uh, with a large number of, of believers, that sometimes means, okay, we'll straighten up and fly right or we're done with you or, you know, you're right. out or, right. or, 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 they'll, or they'll write you off. Well, you screwed up. So too bad. Sorry, missed the boat and, and that be done. And, uh, you know, I think it's fascinating. This film takes place 1983. Religion is almost in every frame is in the subtext or the background of, of yeah, this. Yeah. It's everywhere in this film. And I think that's intentional. I don't know Matt Reeves' uh, faith background or faith position, but I think that that's deliberate. And I think it's powerful, all the more for it. Um, it opens that Reagan speech that you were mentioning. I don't yep, know if you know yep. the context, but it's called the the Evil Empire speech. I had to look it up to to know exactly what was going on with it. It was called the Evil Empire speech, and it's a conversation that he's having with a group of evangelicals about how evil sort of spreads and encroaches in on society and culture at large. And it's fascinating that that's how the movie opens with that just sort of in the background. And what we're talking about is about basically giving ourselves over to like when you're thirsty you will go to where there's water period and you know the the scripture verse that i wrote down as reference point for this was very simple and i i i almost didn't use just this scripture because it's so direct and so simple but it's ephesians chapter 4 verse 27 which simply says don't give the devil a foothold mm. it's very simple and blunt and to the point don't give the devil a foothold and what I will say in response to so much of what we're talking about here is when we read that, and I think Paul is talking to individual people, and he means you, Nathan, me, read, don't, don't us let the devil in. But I want to take it further. And I want to say, if I read, see something in you, Nathan, that I'm like, this is harmful for you. This is bad for you. We have a tendency to uh, be judgmental and be condemning about that. But I think we must overcome the fear of speaking up when we see a problem. I think we must overcome the fear of speaking out when we see, hey, you are headed down a path that is dangerous for you, that is treacherous for you, whether that happens on a national level, whether that happens on a personal level. And I think we must be careful that we ourselves not approach that conversation in judgment, in condemnation, like, hey, uh, don't be doing that, or I'll think less of you, or I'll love you less. But I think sometimes... There's the, the swath of Christians that are so desperate to like protect themselves and protect other people from evil that they just go too far with it and they, you know, ignore the plank in their own eye because of everybody else's speck in their own eye. But I think the other side of the pendulum is also a dangerous step where we won't say anything because we're afraid of coming off judgmental. We won't 
speak up when we see things happening in someone's life or when we won't we won't step in when we see something taking place because we're afraid like oh man they're going to just shut me out they're going to just they're going to just uh think that I'm judging them think that I'm condemning them and I think there obviously has to be nuance there obviously has to be balance there has to be an incredible amount of compassion but I think we have to collectively just not <laughs> not let him in not let him into our thinking, not letting into to our language, not let him in to the, the the way we see the world. And there's there are people who will look at political figureheads. Nathan, you and I are at risk for this of looking at a current political figurehead and seeing them as the devil. We're we're you know it happened. It happened so many times in evangelical language during the election where they would look at either Clinton or Trump and be like, "That's the devil." And and we we do ourselves a disservice because when we see, as we talked about with addiction last week, when we see the person, you said this, although I cannot remember which episode, which conversation you said this, you said that when you, it might have been in our 2016 episode, that you said when we when we see people as less than human, mm-hmm. when we when we begin to stop seeing people as human, as fellow human beings, then we really begin to lose ourselves. And I think that's true. Uh, whether we're looking at public figures, political figures, our neighbor, our enemies, I think that's true across the board. And I think we need to actively remember who the, who the real enemy is. Because again, uh, it, it, I think we ourselves give the devil a foothold in our own lives. And I think we allow him to have a foothold in other people's lives. Basically, what I'm saying is that like the teachers, the mom, the dad who weren't there for Owen were as complicit in giving Abby a foothold into Owen's life as Owen himself was. Sure. And I think sure. they can't wash their hands and say like, oh, well, that was his choice. He's his own person. He was like, yeah, but right. he reached out to you. He reached right. out to you constantly and you ignored him and you, you dismissed him and you didn't care because of whatever, you know, whatever it was. And I think we, we've just got to take some ownership of that. We've got to recognize and repent, you know? Well, and you're, 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 you know, scratching at something that I think is fascinating. You know, you talked about when, when brothers and sisters are, are sort of in peril of, of dangerous behavior. Like I think what we have done for too long on a large scale is the finger wag and the, yes. it's sort of like, man, who knew gremlins was so potent here, but you know, like, You've broken the rule. Right. And now you are, you are done. You are ostracized. You are out. You are no longer a part of our fellowship. And I think the danger there, or rather the more appropriate version of that, like you and I have had a friendship for 15 plus years can, could, could see freight trains in each other's lives and speak into that with love right. and compassion and care. Right. Right. If I've just met someone, and three months in, learn they've got this particular plank in their eye. It is not on me. Mm, like, mm, hear, hear yeah. me. I'm not saying I'm not called to love them. I do think I am, but it's, I'm not called to wag my finger at them. Right. I, I think, right. I think in the same way that active resistance to letting quote unquote him in is what you said of you have to have a relationship with the Lord. You have to be operating from that orbit in order to, to function in a faithful way in the world. In the same way, for me to be able to speak truth and love into someone's life requires a relationship. It does. If I'm un, if I'm unwilling to work to have that relationship, I don't have the liberty. I think this is a Nathan thing to be able to speak into that. You know, I, I said, I, I was, um, uh, close to someone a number, a couple of years ago at this point who was going through an incredibly difficult season, um, of confusion and, 
you know, sort of pain and, and, and some poor decisions. And, you know, you, you, you walk through that sort of experience with someone close to your life and, and you gain, if I think if we're doing this stuff right, you gain perspective, you gain levels of compassion that weren't present before. And I remember thinking, you know, there's a, there's a way in which you use this phrase, saying, you know, large swaths of Christians will, will sort of adopt this kind of tough love approach to quote unquote sin at times, which I personally, I think is, is dreadful. Like right. tough. I, I don't, I'm not a believer in that, but would view like grace. Oh, grace is going to confront you. Grace is the light that grace is the cross that makes Dracula recoil. Nah, maybe, but you still don't get to wield that like a bat. Right. Uh, see a bat a vampire joke. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think grace isn't, well, you're doing something wrong. And so the Lord compels me to tell you, you are wrong and you are wrong for it. And I can't be in your life because you're wrong. Mm -hmm. That's not grace to me. Grace is, I feel like you're on a bad path. I'm not really going to say this out loud, depending on our relationship. What I am going to do is enter into this mess with you. Yeah. And, and just be present because the moment is going to come. Where like the friggin prodigal, you are going to wake up. Mm -hmm. And when you wake up, you're going to know someone's there with you who has not wagged their finger at you and who yes. has loved you and has shown you compassion. To me, that is grace. It's yeah. that when the prodigal wakes up, there's someone there with them. It's in the presence of the, in, in the context of this movie. It would have been someone in Owen's life that he recognizes as a constant, as a presence who, when he recognizes his own isolation and loss, says, well, wait a minute, here is this teacher who has loved me and been by me, or wait a minute, here's this adult that cares, here's this parent, and they're just not there. Right. You know? And, right. and when we, when we as believers abandon those around us, who are lost, who are isolated, who are lonely, who may be quote unquote in sin, we permit them, we conscribe them to let me in, to let yeah. something else in. Yes. Uh, and, and which, which again, you know, is not meant as condemnation of believers. It is meant as remember your calling. Your yeah. calling is not culture warrior. Your calling is not finger wagger. Your calling right. is pay friggin' attention and love your damn neighbor. Like, yes. That is it. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. That's okay. That's all right. Cause, cause correction and instruction and, and all of these things that we're talking about producing healthy, good fruit in your life, it's born out of relationship, which is sure. why, yep. which is why what does Abby need from Owen? She needs a relationship. She needs an ongoing thing. She's not, she's not you know, hiring him for any job. She needs him to buy in. She needs him yep. to invite her in. That, those are the things yeah. that, that she needs because influence stems from relationship. Yep. And I think uh, perhaps just because we've, we've gone a little over time, which I think is is perfectly warranted in this conversation, but I um, think that might be a, a good sort of note. You to could say it. we've uh, beat an undead horse, if you will. <laughs> 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 or run the uh, risk of it, at least. Now I have images of vampire stallions running through my head. So, uh, <laughs> That's but, pretty uh, scary. <laughs> but uh, obviously, this is a film and a conversation that touched on some things Nathan and I are very passionate about. 
Um, we would love to hear your thoughts on it. And as we always say, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue this conversation in a variety of ways with us. You can reach out to us on Twitter. Nathan, give us our Twitter handle. Uh, our Twitter handle for the podcast is at the fear of God. You can also like us on Facebook. There's a link on Twitter to, uh, to like us on Facebook and to comment and post there. You can follow me on Twitter at Reed Lackey and you can follow Nathan on Twitter where? At the Nathan Rouse. Uh, you can also go to morethanonelesson.com and leave a comment on this, uh, this actual post, uh, for the website. Uh, you could also go to iTunes and leave us a review there. You could email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. That's fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation. Um, this is uh, the first, this concludes the first sort of two-parter in our series on the universal monsters and uh, and vampires in general. We will be revisiting it later in the year. Um, we're going to take a break for the next couple of weeks uh, in terms of that conversation. We will have episodes, but uh, we won't... Uh, we won't necessarily be talking about vampires. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, other monsters. Stay tuned and uh, tune in on social media to see where we're going to be going next. Um, but Nathan, thank you so much, uh, very much for having this conversation with me. I really appreciate it. Well, and I appreciate you uh, letting me into the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listeners. Well, thank you very much for letting us in and we will see you next week.